Great to be back with you. Thank you so much for the uh, couple weeks you gave us with Carrie's family. That was very helpful, very needed, and uh, just want to thank you for that. Let's uh, go to the Word together. Open with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be looking again at verses 18 through 38. Three weeks ago, we began looking at these verses together, these four encounters that Jesus had in wrapping up chapters eight, uh, five through nine, which is a, a, a section that Matthew has put to hold together. And in these four encounters with the synagogue ruler whose daughter had died, a bleeding woman, uh, two men who are blind and a mute, we began looking at these verses in what they tell us about salvation. That's kind of the, the, the tack we're taking into these verses, what they tell us about salvation and our approach to salvation. Not that these people were necessarily saved. That's not what the point of this section is. But what their actions teach us about our approach to Christ. What it teaches us about our approach to Christ. And three weeks ago, we began to first notice that it all begins with desperation, right? That's what we focused on three weeks ago. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, desperately distraught that his father, that his daughter had died, comes to Jesus. The woman who had a a bleeding issue for 12 years, desperately isolated from society. Two blind men desperately groping their way through life. In each case, their desperation pushed them to look outside of themselves for help. And that's what we find in salvation. There needs to be a certain criticality, a certain desperation, a deep need that makes you look outside of yourself, outside of your own ability. You know, there comes a point where you get to the end of yourself and you can't find the answer in yourself. Like back in chapter 8 when the disciples were on the, on the Sea of Galilee and that storm came up and they tried to make it on their own for a while, didn't they? You remember? They tried. They rowed. They got the oars out and they were rowing. It was, in the, it was only when the waves began to, to actually come inside the boat that they turned to Jesus who was in the boat with them all along. They got to a desperate point. And the same is true in salvation. There comes a point in life where desperation makes you turn to Jesus. For some, it's physical circumstances, right? Maybe for you, it was physical circumstances. You reach the bottom of the proverbial barrel, right? For some, it's relational circumstances. You know, a broken relationship with a father or a mother or a spouse. Or maybe a lack of relationship. For some, it's an emotional circumstance, a fear. For some, it's people turn to Christ out of fear of hell. Whatever made you initially turn to Jesus for true salvation to be present, for genuine salvation to be present, you must come to understand that your actual desperate circumstances circumstance is that you are a rebellious sinner that stands ultimately before a holy and almighty God. That 
is your desperate circumstance. And that's the desperate circumstance that Scripture describes over and over and over again. Thus, each and every Christian must come to their own personal Isaiah moment. I heard it prayed this morning. It was beautiful. Right? We each have to come to that moment like Isaiah, that, who, and we cry out, and however these words come out, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's where you have to come. That's, that's the desperate crux. And when you come to that moment, when you realize that you are spiritually blind and mute, that you are spiritually bleeding and dying, it makes you desperate. Desperate like these people that we're about to read about. Desperate to have your sight returned, your speech returned, your bleeding stopped. Desperate to stave off death. And the only person that can do that is Jesus Christ. And that is what we saw three weeks ago. But we see something new here, a second ingredient, if you will, of saving faith, and that is faith itself. We see faith here. Look with me at verses 18 through 38 in chapter 9. While he, that is Christ, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep 
without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father God, that is your word that you have for us today. And I pray, Spirit, that you will enliven what I say and do spiritual good to your people through it. Help me, Lord, to exegete these scriptures well and true. Lord, I just rely on you. Let me be less and you be more here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Alan Redpath, the famous pastor, wrote this, Faith is two empty hands held open to receive all from the Lord. Two empty hands held open to receive all from the Lord. Here we see three examples of empty hands. Jairus, that synagogue ruler, came to Jesus with empty hands, didn't he? In verse 18, you can look with it, at it with me. He comes and he, he has nowhere else to go. And he kneels before Jesus and says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. A great statement of faith right there. Then we see the empty hands more clearly of this bleeding woman in verse 22. Here she says, If only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus, in verse 22, identifies that faith. He turned to her, seeing her, saying, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And we see this faith even more explicitly in the two blind men in verse 28. Here they come and they follow him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when they finally get to Jesus... He asked them point blank, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. They trust him. Matthew wants to highlight the fact that belief, trust, faith, whatever word you want to use there, they all mean the same thing, is a necessary ingredient for saving them from their desperate position. It's, it has to be there. Faith has to be present. Now, it doesn't matter about the amount of faith. It doesn't matter how much you have. That's not the point. And that's not the point that Scripture makes either. It's not the amount that you have, but the mere presence of faith. Later on, Jesus will describe this faith in terms of a mustard seed. He's trying to explain to them and explain to us that it's not the amount, it's the presence, the, mere, the smallest presence of faith. And that's true of our desperate, desperate situation too. For all of us to be saved from our sin, to be forgiven, faith must be present. There has to be faith. Not a perfect and complete faith. Let me say that again. You don't have to have a perfect and complete faith faith to be saved one does not need to know everything about Jesus we're not told but I'm sure these three people coming up to him didn't know everything about Jesus but a mere mustard seed of faith Alexander McLaren said it this way there can be no faith so feeble that Christ does not respond to it isn't that wonderful there can be faith in no faith so feeble that Christ will not respond to it. Doesn't that give us encouragement? 
That's what the scripture says over and over again. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, trusts Jesus, will not die, but have everlasting life. Perhaps the best example of this mustard seed faith is the thief on the cross, right? It has to be one of the best examples of of a mere faith that we have. The thief on the cross knew only that he was guilty and was getting what he deserved and Christ was innocent. That's his cry on the cross. That's, That's what his declaration of faith is. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. That feeble faith (laughs) that that thief had, the mere faith, the mustard seed faith, Jesus recognized it and accepted it. The thief knew nothing of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that was taking place. Couldn't have explained it. He knew nothing of Jesus' virgin birth. He knew nothing, maybe he knew nothing of his miraculous ministry, we're not sure. He certainly didn't know of his resurrection. But he turned to him in faith. And that's the foundation of any genuine salvation. The foundation is turning to Jesus in genuine faith. The realization that you are a vile sinner under just condemnation, just like that thief on the cross, and that Jesus is innocent. That he, he lived a perfect life, that life that we cannot live. That though innocent, he willingly went to the cross and bore our shame, as it says in Philippians 2. He took on our penalty, the penalty of death. And through his death and his powerful resurrection, he gives you eternal life. That's the simple and the sweet gospel. That's it. And to be saved, you must turn to Jesus with empty hands and place your faith in him. That wonderful hymn, nothing in my hands I bring. Right? Nothing. We don't bring anything to the table. A genuine trust in what Jesus did on our behalf is what saves us. Yet how do you know if your faith is genuine? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked the question, how do I know if my faith is genuine? I've asked that question. Anyone else ask that question? It's okay to nod. I've asked that question. Many people in the crowd, John, uh, excuse me, John MacArthur points out that the woman in that story with the woman who was bleeding, that many people in the crowd that day had contact with Jesus, yet only the woman was healed. That's interesting, isn't it? He goes on to say, Jesus knows the difference between a person that approaches him with mere religious curiosity or a sense of adventure and one who comes to him out of desperation and genuine faith. Jesus knows the difference. 
There are many people who come to Jesus out of intellectual curiosity. Perhaps you've had, had, had conversations with them. There's a lot of people who just want to spar intellectually. There's not faith there. Many people come to Jesus for emotional reasons. Many people come to Jesus for a type of life insurance. You know, I'm getting towards the end of my life. Death is looming a little closer than it was. I'm thinking about it a little bit more. Let me, let me just check this box. So I ask again, how do you know if your faith is genuine? Well, if we look at our text, we see the simple and clear answer that Scripture bears out again and again is that the people that came to faith, that came to Jesus with faith, were changed. They were changed. The woman's bleeding stopped. The blind men saw. Jairus' daughter lives. In other words, there's a conspicuous and visible change in these people. And so too with genuine faith. Paul wrote to the Colossian church, For you died and your life is now hidden with God, in, with Christ in God. Since you have taken off your old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There's a change that takes place when you come to Christ with genuine faith. Here Paul describes it as a renewal. He also describes it as a a new self, a new man. In that new man, that renewal has visible, discernible manifestations. The proud become humble, angry, kinder, gentler. The judgmental become empathetic. The austere, tender. The unteachable, teachable. The addict, self-controlled. The unforgiving become forgiving. The unapologetic, become apologetic. There's a change that happens. Genuine faith results in genuine change. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There it is. And we see this change throughout Scripture, don't we, in people? I mean, the obvious ones like Peter who was a denier, went to his death proclaiming Christ being crucified upside down. Paul, that persecutor of the church, becomes a lover of the church, a protector, an apologizer, the greatest apologizer for the faith. John, who wanted to call down fire on those towns that, that, that rejected him in Christ. Remember that? Call down fire, Jesus, on them. He became the softest, most loving of the apostles. David, desperate to hide his sin. How does God change him? He, He writes psalms confessing his sin for all to sing and to hear and to read for eternity. 
One of my favorite Old Testament stories of change in, in all of Scripture is probably Naaman. Found in 2 Kings 5, that great and proud Syrian general who had contracted leprosy. Remember that story? And he, he goes to, to visit Elisha. And until he has that encounter with God's prophet, and when he does, we see that he went from being this great, proud general who was, who was not willing to even wash in the Jordan to a humble man carrying two bags of dirt, holy land dirt, back to Syria so that he could bow and worship Yahweh. Genuine faith and all that comes with it changed Naaman. And it changes you and it changes me. Not totally, not completely, but inch by inch. It changes you. Genuine faith is seen by inch by inch movement towards being more like Jesus Christ. Ex-slave trader John Newton, who was converted to Christianity, wrote what I think is probably the, I think the most definitive statement of what sanctification is, of what change is, gospel change in a life. He wrote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be someday. But by God's grace, I'm not what I used to be. That is it. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you? I want to I ask you this week to examine yourself. Just like Paul tells us to in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There should be discernible change in your life. Not many of us have gone from slave trader to pastor or from a leprous general to a dirt-carrying follower. But you should be able to look at your life like John Newton and say, by God's grace, I'm not who I once was. The other part of faith we see here is that faith has to have the right Objective, object. Faith has to have the right object. The term drinking the Kool-Aid is popular these days. We use it. It came into our vernacular fairly recently in the late 70s because of the Jonestown tragedy. In 1978, over 900 people from the fringe group The People's Temple were led from San Francisco to a small village in South America by a charismatic leader named Jim Jones. They followed him there because they believed he could create this utopian society that they could all live in. When a few people began to question him and the U.S. government began to investigate, he told his followers that, quote, they must commit an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. So, 
one by one with that as the mantra, over 900 people lined up, placed their faith in Jim Jones, and drank Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. When the government arrived, the camp was strewn with the bodies of 918 men, women, and children. Brothers and sisters, you can have a faith that is very strong and very sincere and very misplaced. It's placed on the wrong object. And it leads to death. People place their faith in all kinds of things. We place our faith, I mean, the most obvious one that Scripture says over and over and over again is we place our our faith in money and for our security. We place our faith in, in relationships, don't we? We place our, our faith in, in the government, don't we? I mean, if there's one thing that this week has shown us with the, with the riots, if there's one thing that's shown us and brought to the surface that people have put so much faith in the government... I mean, one way that you can see how much faith that you have in anything is when it's taken away, right? The default position of the human heart is that we put our faith where? Where, Where's the default position of the human heart? In myself. I'm going to put faith in myself to do this. That's what works righteousness is all about. When you think you have the ability to actually... Make it to heaven yourself. Through being good morally or kind or generous. But all those things are like following Jim Jones down to South America. They all lead to death. They have no power to solve the really ultimate and eternal problem we have. And that is death. Eternal separation from God. For that, you have to have the right object to put your faith in. Look with me at verse 27. The synagogue ruler and the woman and the two blind men all come to Jesus. But what the two blind men say here is remarkable in the true sense of the word. They come to Jesus and they say, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. If you're a Bible underliner, underline that phrase, son of David. They are identifying who Jesus is. This is the first of five times that Matthew is going to use this phrase, son of David. The most memorable one you and I know very well comes at the end of Jesus' life when he's entering Jerusalem for the last time. And the crowds are gathering and they're putting down palm branches down in front of him and they're, they're crying out many things. But one of the things that the crowds are crying out is what? Hosanna. Blessed be the son of David. See, in chapters 8 and 9 here, Jesus is laying out his messianic credentials. He's healing diseases. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving sin. He's raising the dead. And what these two blind men do 
by using that title is identify who Jesus is. God, from the very beginning, has placed clues in his scripture, his Old Testament, to this coming Savior. He embedded clues. He embedded, you know, these, these are the clues that many times at Advent, with that, the Advent uh, cal- uh, candles that we light, these are the clues that, that we're remembering about Jesus. You know, geographical clues, like he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to, his ministry is going to start in, in Galilee. Or ministry clues, like he's going to be a, a healer of the deaf and the blind. Or teaching clues, he's going to be, he'll be one who teaches in parables. And also positional clues, like he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, or or he will be a prophet like Moses, or he will be a king in the line of David, a son of David. If you watch the Bible Project this morning, that Sunday school filler that the elders are, are encouraging you to do. You watched a, a snippet, about a five-minute section on the covenants of Scripture, right? If you remember that. This is one. This is, they talk about the four major covenants God made with man, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Mosaic or covenant with Israel, and the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a temple, a house, let's say, for God. But his hands were too bloody. And so God said, no, you cannot build a temple for me. Your son will build a temple. But, and he takes this opportunity to make a covenant with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God was promising that day that in some future day, the Savior of the world will come from his line, David's line. And these two blind men are putting their finger on it. They're identifying Jesus as that man, that son of David. They're placing their faith in the right object, Jesus Christ. Because the own, he alone has the power to cure our spiritual blindness. He alone can open our mouths to tell real truth. He alone can save us from the curse of death. And that is the great hope. When Martin Luther lost his beloved 14-year-old daughter, Magdalena, to the plague that swept through Europe in the 16th century, those who knew Luther recalled the event this way. Brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. Then when she finally died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of the coffin, Luther screamed, hammer away, hammer away, for one day she shall rise again. That is the cry of faith properly placed. Jesus Christ is the only person who holds the answer to death. He's the only person. You see, no one escapes death. 
The little girl that Jesus raised here in our text, she died again. Lazarus, that he raised from the dead, died again. We do not trust Christ to save us from an early death. I could have died on the operating table a year ago. But he saves us from the finality and the sting of death. That's what Christ does. He saves us from the finality and the sting of death. That's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is no sting with Christ. Professional golfer Paul Azinger was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 33. He had just won the PGA Championship and had 10 other victories to his name. He wrote, A genuine feeling of fear came over me when I got the diagnosis. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I had accomplished in golf became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do was live. Then he remembered something Larry Moody, who teaches a Bible study on tour, had told him one day. Moody said, Azinger, you're not in the land of the living going to the land of dying. We're in the land of the dying trying to get to the land of the living. Azinger recovered from chemotherapy and returned to the PGA. But with a deepened perspective, he writes, I've I've made a lot of money since then on tour and I've won a lot of tournaments. But that happiness always tends to evaporate. The only way you will ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I don't have problems, but I feel like I've found the answer to the six-foot hole. Have you found the answer to the six-foot hole? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What faith in the right object gives you is the answer to the six-foot hole. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And Spirit, now I leave it in your hands to do the work that you will do with it in each of our lives, in each of our hearts, in each of our minds. Lord, help us to depend more and more on you and less and less in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.